Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pages Unknown, the podcast dedicated to all things books and pop culture. My name is Michaela, and I will be joined, as always, by my effervescent co-host, Zachariah. Say hi, Zachariah. Hi, Zachariah. This is your fair and evergreen warning that there will be some spoilers throughout this episode. This will be true for every episode moving forward. We made sure to read the book in its entirety, and now we want to talk about it. As a reminder, new episodes are out every Wednesday. And if you, our wonderful listeners, would like to read along with us, we're posting all the books we're reading on the Literal Book Club app. You can join Literal with the invite link, literal.club slash invite slash I-F-D-E-P-2-G. One more time, that is literal.club slash invite slash IFDEP2G. If you're already a member of the Literal app, you can find the book club under Pages Unknown Podcast Read Along. You can find us on Goodreads and TikTok under Pages Unknown as well. Enjoy the episode. For the anniversary of Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, we're talking about sparkly vampires, shirtless werewolves, and religious trauma. Classic combo. We'll reminisce on the series and dive into the new novel, Corinne, and whether or not its author, Rebecca Morrow, is more into vampires than she lets on. So, Michaela, can you give us what this book is about? Introduce us to the world of Corinne. Okay, it, it won't take long because there's really not a plot. This <laughs> book follows Corinne Callahan as she grows up in a fundamentalist church. Right off the bat, we know Corinne is very self-critical. She doesn't feel like she fits in with the rest of the congregation, despite how close-knit this community is. She continually describes mm-hmm. herself as an outsider. Something else we know about Corinne immediately is that she is obsessed with a capital O with Enoch mm-hmm. Miller. Enoch Miller is the child of an elder in the church, and he's essentially the representation of everything that Corinne is not. He's respected, he has high social standing, and is expected to go far in the church. Corinne's family is poor, and they were not actually born into the church. They were brought into the church by Enoch Miller's mother, Bonnie. This leads to a pretty strong bond between the Callahans and the Millers. So strong, in fact, that when Corinne's mom and stepfather divorce and they are evicted from their home, they move in with the Millers. They live, their mm-hmm. whole family, in the basement of the Millers' home. And this is where we really see the relationship between Corinne and Enoch begin. The book describes their non-friendship at school and in church. <laughs> the physical descriptions of Enoch are worth mentioning because it's very strange. He's apparently huge. Everything about him is big. His height, his shoulders, his lips, his eyes, even his tongue is described as being mm-hmm. big, which is gross. It's almost cartoonish the way he's he's described. Imagine, if you could, the sexiest version of Lurch from the Adams family. That's how I picture Enoch. <laughs> <laughs> Except not at all sexy. <laughs> Now, the two of them get closer from living together. They start playing these extremely elaborate board games with all these different house rules. And eventually, they cross the line of being semi-friends, and they have premarital sex. Now, Enoch, being the good boy that he is, confesses to this sin immediately and is kept within the church. He's, He's welcomed back, having confessed his sin. Corinne, on the other hand, is cast out. She's excommunicated from the church and disowned by her family. The book Mm -hmm. picks up over a decade later with Corinne returning to her hometown. Now, having all of that information, Zachariah, what were your initial reactions? So you and I were texting during the entire reading of this book. And I remember texting in big caps, 
what is going on? I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Multiple times during this. I will say, I tried to keep some notes in my journal about how I was feeling while I was reading it. And I went from strong dislike to neutral to being fully repulsed. (laughs) And then I was starting to lean maybe lukewarm by the end. I think the reason I was feeling lukewarm and why I was starting to relate to them, because much like them, I wanted some kind of conclusion to happen. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted the book to be over. When I finished the book and I put it down, I stared into space for a very long time. It didn't feel like an ending. It felt like, honestly, as much as I wanted the book to end, as much as I wanted the book to end, I felt that it probably needed another 20 pages to wrap it up in a way that would make me feel satisfied. This didn't leave me wanting more. This left me wanting a better ending for Corinne, because I think she really does deserve one. Yeah. And for how earnest in a lot of ways Enoch is, I think he also deserved a better ending and better treatment by folks. The big thing I want to talk about, one of the major takeaways I had, her worldly experience is just mentioned. It's not explored. It gives her no character. We're just supposed to believe that all of a sudden, this worldly experience has given her this girl boss, pseudo feminist edge. Moving back, all that's been happened now that she's that she's come back, she's been stripped down to her most core being again. She's just a woman. That's all she has ever been told she is and all that she's been allowed to be. She can't be a professional. She's not supposed to go to college if she's in the church as a woman. Women are there to serve men and be observed by men in the church. They're a tool for the church and those who preside over it. She does get out. Corinne gets out of the whole thing, either by choice or not, by circumstance, right? But she allows the church to dictate her relationships and her self-worth in a way that does not feel like she truly escaped. She might have removed herself, but she has not divorced herself from those rules, regardless of how many times she says throughout the entire book that she will not abide by them. The survey found that was a lie. That that was a lie. Michaela, I want to hear how you felt about it because some of the things you were texting me are a little unhinged. (laughs) Yeah, I want to say really quickly that I respect anyone's views on books. I respect opinions. Everyone's entitled to them. And my opinion about this book is that I hated it. Just to be blunt, I'm just going to put it all out there. I think I texted you this. If I didn't, you can tell me. If it Mm -hmm. weren't for the podcast... I would not have finished this book. I would not have finished it. I would have put it down. I would have said goodbye Mm -hmm. and it would have left my brain. Because of the podcast, it's going to live in my brain forever. (laughs) If I could hit you with just a couple of my highlights here, okay? The reason that I have such a strong negative feeling about this book. Similar to what you said, Mm -hmm. I'll piggyback off of it. Corinne is one dimensional. All the characters are one dimensional. We don't get to explore any of their relationships. As we said, Corinne is excommunicated not only from the church, but also from her family. She has younger siblings, siblings that when she comes back into their lives, she doesn't know them. They have families, they have children. That is never expounded upon. It's so Corinne and Enoch, that's all it is. It reads like a bad fan fiction, except for the fact that at least in fan fiction, the sex scenes aren't horrific to read. Oh my gosh. This caused me physical discomfort, almost to the point of pain. I kept having to put it down. These sex scenes are uncomfortable. Wow. I don't think either of these characters were un- like attracted to each other at all. It was very weird. We know that Enoch, and I don't want to say rats out, 
He confesses to his sin, but in doing so, he's hurt Corinne. Corinne will not be welcomed mm-hmm. back into the church ever. Right. She goes off to college. She gets a job. She gets a master's degree. None of this is talked about. We get no. nothing about it. This would be a, such a better book. I would care so much more about these characters. If I got to see the person that she is, if we saw her actually deconstructing her religious trauma right. and turning herself into a better person because of it. But no, she comes home. She's meek. She's quiet. To your point, she doesn't drink. It actually reminded me a little bit of Mm -hmm. an episode of Gilmore Girls. I promise I won't bring every episode (laughs) back to Gilmore Girls. Lane, one of the characters in Gilmore Girls, her mother is very religious and she rebels in every single way she possibly can. She listens to crazy music. She dyes her hair. She wears, you know, fancy clothes that she's not supposed to wear. She goes out on Halloween. She watches Mm -hmm. R-rated movies. She will not have premarital sex. That is the one thing that stuck. And there's an episode of her talking about it, her going up to her mother and saying, I hope you're happy. You're in my head. (laughs) Like, this is the thing that stuck. Right. For Corinne, it's everything. We find out very briefly, she was engaged before she came home. She broke off an engagement. Exactly. Where is that in this book? I don't know. That would have given us so much context to her growth. It's so one-dimensional, in fact, that in the book, we end with Corinne and Enoch getting married. Now, this marriage is not condoned by the church, so they don't expect any Mm -hmm. of their family members to come, but they do. Enoch's brother Mm -hmm. shows up to their marriage. Corinne's mother and her siblings show up to her marriage. Right. I should care about that. That should be a huge moment, but it's not. It was taken from her. The author did us a disservice by not providing Corinne a moment to look around and realize what was happening. It was just a surprise. Not only was it a surprise to us, but it was a surprise to Corinne. And it didn't feel like a reveal. It felt like a, I'm trying to tie this up with a nice ribbon for you. And it just wasn't. It was a brown paper package that had been left on the porch when it rained. It was bad. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, no, it was terrible. I do feel like I should balance this out with a couple of things I did like. I don't want this to all be so negative. I'm a big board game player. My partner and I play a lot of board games. So I really appreciated the scenes of them playing board games together and they eventually get bored with the ones they're playing. So they kind of combine them into one mega board game that takes up the Miller's whole living room and they play it every weekend. And this is the one time she looks forward to in the week, which is, you know, a thing I won't get into, but the rules are really cool. I appreciated that they had a bunch of house rules Uh because we do as well. Another thing I appreciated, though I thought, again, like the marriage thing, it fell flat. She doesn't rejoin the church. Corinne could, in theory, repent she could confess her sins and be forgiven and be brought back into the church. She could marry Enoch in the church and continue on, raise her children in the church and all that. And she doesn't. She says to him quite clearly, and again, what I think should have been a bigger deal, it was just one conversation. She says, I'm never going back. And that I appreciated. I thought that was a glimmer of the strength that we really should have seen a lot more of, but I'm glad we got that. You know, I just want to comment on that. It does feel like throughout this book, the author took this approach of it's not the destination that matters. It's the journey, the journey to get to the point where she could have a one, one sentence ultimatum feels like such an empowering, it's supposed to feel like an empowering moment. And in reality, it feels like she threw it away. Yeah. There's nothing there. It is, it rang so hollow to me that she was saying, I'm not rejoining. And the reason that it felt kind of hollow, I think if Enoch had repackaged the way that he was approaching her, she might've just said yes. 
Yeah, I agree. There's no growth here. This is a woman who reverted to a 15-year-old girl who saw somebody caring about her a little bit and ran with it. No, absolutely. I do not like the message that this book sent at all. No, neither do I. I think it's harmful. But you're right. There were some things in here I did like. Yeah. The book wasn't unreadable. I agree with you. So as we've said in previous episodes, I am a librarian. I've worked in Mm -hmm. libraries my whole life. I've also worked in bookstores. Because of this, it may be obvious, I give a lot of book recommendations. People ask... (laughs) me a lot for book recommendations. And the reason I'm pretty good at it is because when I first read a book, I can immediately imagine who this book would be good for, right? I can start to think about my friends, go down the roster, who would like this book, who would enjoy this. That didn't happen with this book. I had real, real trouble while reading Mm -hmm. it because I hated it so much, trying to conceptualize exactly who this book was for. And so it kind of spawned a question in my brain that I'd like to pose to you now. Sure. If you had to recommend this book, who would you recommend it to? Like you have to. You cannot say no. If I had to recommend this book to someone, it would not be to myself or to you. I would, (laughs) however... I think I would recommend this book to somebody who had religious experiences that were negative. I would give them a bunch of qualifiers to what (laughs) this book is and is not. Yeah, what expectations, yeah. Exactly. I would try to temper their expectations for what this book is and what it could do for them emotionally as a reader. I think I would maybe recommend this book to my mother. It might sound weird, a son recommending a book that has sex scenes to his mother. (laughs) I think she would read this book and enjoy it, but she wouldn't fall for the trap of believing that this is, as some people have said, a retelling, a modern Romeo and Juliet. She would not buy that hype. She would just, I think, enjoy the story itself. My mom's a a romance reader. I think I would actually recommend people to not read this book if they are expecting a critique of the church. If they're expecting a real critique, don't read this book. Michaela, what did you think about it? I mean, I totally agree with what you just said. I think that my expectation going into it was that it was a book about unpacking religious trauma. It's not. If I had to recommend this to someone, as I was thinking about it, I guess I would recommend it to the same audience that Colleen Hoover reaches. And I don't want that to come Uh. across in the wrong way. I'm saying the Colleen (laughs) Hooverites. Colleen Hooverins. I don't know what their name is. <laughs> Residents of Whoville, yes. Yes, exactly. I'm saying them because the way that Colleen Hoover writes is quite similar. Mm. Snappy, her characters don't have this incredible detail given to them. So I think that this would suit people who engaged with those books. Like you, I would probably provide quite a few qualifiers to say, don't expect a lot. I went into this book hoping that it was going to be a critique of not just religion, but also of gender norms that are not just enforced in the church, but in society at large, even in the worldly, you know, ungodly society, right? Yeah. And it didn't. It almost reinforced some of those things for me. It almost said, you know what? Maybe a man is the most important thing to a woman. I don't know. I don't date women. I don't know. (laughs) I totally agree with you. It's interesting that you said you would recommend it to your mom because she's a a romance reader. Is this romance? What genre is this? What genre is it really? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we've got romance. Is it is it religious mm-hmm. fiction? Is it women's literature? It's supposed to be, you know, they talk about it as a, a twist on Romeo mm-hmm. and Juliet. What is this book? Is Romeo and Juliet women's literature? God help me. I don't know. Women's literature. Okay, just to give a quick description here, because I think romance is pretty self-explanatory. Religious fiction, yep. pretty self-explanatory. Women's literature mm-hmm. is a genre that really bothers me. I'm not going to get into it too heavily. We can discuss it in a later episode. Women's literature is 
is described as being women-centered books that focus on events in a woman's life that are marketed specifically towards women and that deal with troubles and traumas unique to the female-identifying experience. This doesn't need to exist. There is no such thing as male fiction. It's just fiction. Mm -hmm. It's a silly genre. But I don't think that this even fits into it because her entire Uh life, it's not about Corinne's life. It isn't about Mm -hmm. the troubles that are unique to her as a woman. It's about a man. It's all about a man. So I don't think it's Mm -hmm. women's literature. Nothing about this was romantic to me. I guess religious fiction. I actually want to say you said in a text message to me, this book is sexual, but not sexy. Yeah. There's a lot of repressed things that are being expressed. Those things being expressed are not romantic. They are just, the word wanton is used every two chapters. Yes. She just throws it out there when she's thinking to herself, like, oh my gosh, I'm just so sexual. I'm a Jezebel. Right. Yes. Jezebel is... (laughs) Actually, when I was reading it, one of my favorite parts of the book when reading through, I actually wrote this in my notes. I wrote, stop making me read big wet tongue. The description focus on this man's tongue was horrible to read. It gave me (laughs) goosebumps and not in a good way. (laughs) In like a, can I get out of your way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I will say this author does a good job of making this person, Enoch, they do a good job of making this person they have described as ugly kind of sounding hot. Yeah. Because they're they're talking about big shoulders, but they're too big. But his <laughs> wonderful hairy chest, which is almost too large for his entire being. It's so strange. She describes him as a door, that he just is a door as a human person. When you ask about what genre does this fit into? No, this is not romance. This is about religion, but it's not religious fiction. Women's literature, this also does not fit within it. We as readers are better suited to think about this book as being semi-autobiographical. I think that this specifically is about either an experience that this person lived through or has witnessed somebody else live through. Yes, yes. I think I totally agree with you. I think that's a great way to phrase it because this seems like something the author maybe wanted to live through. Maybe they didn't choose this path. Circumstances in their life led them away from this. And it's sort of a self mm-hmm. fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. What could have been. <laughs> is this just... Okay, I think we're inventing a new genre here. This is autobiographical fan fiction. Like this is... <laughs> we did it. You heard it here first. TM. You heard it here first. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree with you. The semi-autobiographical thing, it's interesting. And it's clear that we know for a fact, okay, I don't think there's any debate around the fact that the person who wrote this book, Rebecca Morrow, which is a pseudonym, Mm -hmm. grew up in a fundamentalist church. I think that is pretty clear. They have a a pretty good knowledge, it seems to me, of the inner workings of a church and the hierarchy of it. Yep. But I don't think this accurately displays what that type of religion is like. Religion is almost secondary. You would Mm -hmm. expect religion in this case to be almost its own character. Yep. But it isn't. What role do you think religion plays in this book? Is this a condemnation of a church establishment or is this propaganda Mm. for it? Well, it's weird. Occasionally I find myself thinking a certain chapter or a sentence was leading me to a criticism of the church. Yeah. In reality, where that sentence led me was almost a justification or a pass was being given to this behavior that was being described. When I picked this book up, I agree with you. I thought religion was going to be a main character in this. I thought it was almost going to be the oppressive force that was driving the book. And I thought it was going to be 
be the major problem. It's a minor character. It serves as a backdrop. And I think that that can inform us about maybe who actually wrote the book, because it's not a criticism. If the person wanted to hide behind a pseudonym, you would think that they were doing it because they wanted to hide that they were critiquing the church. This book doesn't do any of that. I agree. It plays a role in the book and it provides something that our main characters are struggling against or attempting to reconcile within themselves, with each other, and then with their community, but it's not done well at all. I agree. I hesitate to say this because I think it might be giving too much credit. I might be looking a little bit too deeply into it, but to Mm -hmm. me, I didn't think it was pro or anti-religion or organized religion or church. It just existed. Like everything else in this book, every character just exists. They don't have any fluctuation. Every time that Enoch, this is like a minor thing, but Enoch would be described as laughing and it would be muted. Every emotion was muted that he was portraying Yeah, because he just exists. Corinne purely exists for Enoch. Religion and the church exist as a way to bring those two together. I think at the end of the book, she says, maybe we were meant to join this fundamentalist church because it brought us together. What? It's this weird obfuscation of your expectation of where you think her logic is actually going to go. Great word. It's almost a thank you. It's almost like she's crediting the church for enabling her to find the man she was supposed to find. So weird. Religion in this book is stated as a fact. Water is wet. The earth is spinning. The sun is warm. Enoch is religious. (laughs) Jesus loves us. Like it is. Those are just the constants in life. Life. Those are the realities that the author is presupposing that we just have to accept. It's not that religion is put upon them or that's, that it's even been provided to them. It's that the religion is supposed to be innate. No, that's a great point because that could also lead yourself into, okay, well, that's why they're not unpacking any of their trauma because in this world, there's no trauma to unpack. It just is. It's not traumatic. Fascinating stuff. While there's no real critique or praise of the church, you feel the teachings from the church all throughout the book, and they lay them out as the plot points. And those plot points too get graced over. One of the ones I want to talk about, they always say there's somebody going to lead you off the path, right? They're going to continue to tempt you with worldly things. Corinne's gone into the ungodly world and became quite successful at a marketing agency. Her best friend Kyle works there. If you're looking at this objectively, Kyle keeps calling. Kyle is the thing. This is the allegory for bringing her further off the path, right? She's returned home to the area, right? She's come back to Enoch. Kyle is almost made to be annoying. Yeah. There is a connection to the ungodly world that still exists through her friend Kyle that she works for. And he is supposed to be this thing to further bring her off the path, which obviously she'd already fallen off of in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. But she still sees herself as somebody who has to tread that line in order to keep her family. It's taken over a decade for her to come back this close to the fold. And you see her brushing off Kyle and brushing off Kyle. And I read that as a subtle hint to say, no, I have found myself back to a path. I don't want to keep having this conversation with you. I totally agree with you. Kyle is very much portrayed as a corrupter for Corinne. Mm -hmm. He's leading her off of the path back to Enoch, back to the church. Now she's pretty clear to Enoch. She says, I'm not going back into the church, right? Right. He asks her to because he wants it to be the path of least resistance. He wants them to get married. Mm -hmm. Enoch takes it upon himself to cast himself out 
He goes right. to the elders of the church and he says, I'm excommunicating myself here. I'm I'm dating a worldly woman and I, mm-hmm. I want to stay with her. That should have been a huge deal. It was like two chapters of him crying and then not even nothing. Not and they even. still it get was, married. Mm-mm. Oh my God. Yep. They set house rules with each other. They, they continually talk about the church's rules. And so then Corinne and Enoch talk about making their own rules. He broke the only real rule that Corinne wanted, which was to communicate to her what was going on, that they would talk about things that related to the church or the movement in their relationship. Enoch broke that, as you just said, and it was just glossed over. It they didn't they didn't care about it in the next chapter. It was done. It that was it. It's crazy. And it's so fascinating how once I had finished this book and after I uh-huh. fumed about it for a little while and I ranted to my partner about how I had to read it. <laughs> And it was living in my brain forever. Yep. I took it over to Goodreads and to Google to look at what other people were saying because the book talk reviews I had seen were overwhelmingly positive. Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of people who were really praising this book. I really enjoyed it. I didn't understand that at all. So I thought, let no. me go to the the real authority. Let me go to Goodreads. <laughs> wow. What a varied response. Absolutely. Polarizing. Hugely. I mean, you've got big name authors, people like Jody Picoult saying that she was riveted, that it's a modern day Romeo and Juliet. Huh? This is detached from reality. Uh, listen, Jody Picoult, what's going on here? It wasn't just Jody Picoult, though. There was there was another big author that did a similar review. Let me see if I can find it. Samantha Irby. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She says, this book is full of beautiful sentences that ripped my heart out. It's smart and sexy as hell. Hell is sexier than this. Hell is much sexier than this. <laughs> Where was the sexy? Did I miss it? Am I crazy? No, it's like you said, it was sexual. It was not sexy. No, and I know that Glamour had done a little review on it as well, saying that it was romantically thrilling. What we have here is a deceptively fabulous summer read, a story about sex and longing with the integrity to keep you caring. None of that applies to me. <laughs> I disagree with every part of that sentence. <laughs> I will say it is a story about longing. It, they got something correct here in their review. It absolutely is a story about toxic, horrible longing. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Actually, I was definitely longing for the book to end. That I can relate to for sure. The thing we have yet to mention in so far in this episode, the thing that we have yet to mention in this episode and the thing that is missing from a, a lot of these reviews, Enoch did get married before Corinne came back and went through a divorce and has been going through that divorce for a couple of years. Why did Enoch get divorced? Shannon, his wife, the person that was always talking shit on Corinne at church when they were younger, Shannon is a lesbian and it's lost over like it's not a big deal. It's a bigger deal that Corinne and Enoch had sex than it is that Shannon is a lesbian and is divorcing Enoch. How the hell am I supposed to care more about Corinne than I am about Shannon Frank, who is arguably in the few chapters that we get dialogue from Shannon. She is the more fleshed out character. Oh my gosh. She seems like the only character that's been through therapy. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) She's got that Wellbutrin prescription and she is living life. Yeah. She went out and got a prescription and cut her hair and called it a day. Uh, She bought that Melissa Etheridge D and said, you know what? We're (laughs) we're riding into the sunset, baby. She's got this loving partner who's from a Unitarian church. And I thought that was especially interesting to read. I went to a Unitarian church for a number of years. I really enjoyed that environment because everybody was gay. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was fantastic. Just the fact that I am told by this author that Corinne is the main character in this story. This is also why it feels like a self-insert. This author knew that they were not the main character in their own story. They actively <laughs> knew it. And I feel bad saying that. I feel horrible saying that. But Shannon is such a... Enoch is more interesting character. Her brother's wife, Ugh. who we see, who's one dimensional and is just always taking a nap when Corinne becomes a caretaker for this child. Oh my God. That person is more interesting. All those people are more interesting than Corinne. Yeah, I totally agree. And I love the way that we're delivering this plot right now because it may seem to some listeners like we're glossing over a lot. No, no. This is exactly the amount of time that the book gave to these plot lines. This is it. That's it. We didn't get to see anything between a development of a re- any type of relationship between Corinne and her siblings. It just kind yeah. of existed like everything else. It was on neutral. We were just coasting through this story. Shannon should have been the main character and the emphasis should have been between Shannon and Corinne and Enoch working out their problems together and Shannon saying we're going to therapy and all of them going in and being fine. But instead she was another tool for the writer to show how evolved these characters are because they're so accepting of this lesbian woman in their lives who's also an interior decorator and has decorated their homes. Instead of being the main character, Shannon is used as a tool to show how evolved Enoch and Corinne are, how worldly they are to be accepting of her homosexuality, when in reality, it should have all been about Shannon and Corinne and Enoch going to therapy together and getting pixie haircuts together and living in a weird commune. Want me to keep that in the podcast? Even if the author had done this book differently and we had Corinne as a character and Shannon as a character, would it have passed the Bechdel test? Because they're still just surrounding one person. They're still just surrounding Enoch and their proximity to him and their relationship or past relationships with him. It still would have been all about Enoch. It just bothers me. A lot of what we just described is what makes me think Stephanie Meyer did not write this book. That is very interesting. A lot of what we just talked about, these characters kind of being one dimensional or their stories getting glossed over. No, 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 no. Stephanie Meyer gives us a lot of lore. Oh, yeah. She gives each person purpose, even if they're kind of silly and almost a caricature of themselves, right? Stephanie gives us lore. She gives us backstory. She tells us what's going on. Corinne is just, no, I'm just fat and sad. And you know what? I'm fine. She says that about herself constantly. I'm not calling Corinne fat. No, this is what Corinne says to herself all the time. Everything we've just described, this book, it's not pro-religion. It's not anti-religion. I think if it was Stephanie Meyer who wrote this book under a pseudonym, why would Stephanie Meyer write it under a pseudonym? To critique the church. That's really the only reason I can see for this to be Stephanie Meyer. This book did not critique the church. I do not think Stephanie Meyer wrote this, but I did mention this to you, Michaela. I think Stephanie Meyer was given an advanced copy of this book. Yes, you did mention that. There's something about it still being about family and relationships in this way that made me think of Stephanie, because at the end of the day, that's what a lot of Twilight is about, having this kind of family. These orphans finding parental figures. No, absolutely. Michaela, do you think that Stephanie Meyer wrote this book? No, I don't. (laughs) That's the short answer. The long answer is a little bit more complicated. I did Mm -hmm. have a moment where I was unsure sure where I thought, okay, maybe this could be her because on page uh-huh. 257 of this book, there's a sentence that includes okay. the word imprinted. And I wrote in my notes, oh, no. it's her. <laughs> <laughs> Just because of the word imprinted. She's the only person in history that's ever used it. You can't convince me otherwise. So I did have that she moment. She invented it. Oh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I think she's got the rights. So I was like, oh, okay. 
maybe this is Stephanie Meyer. But no, I, I don't actually think that. Not only are their voices very different, I did do a sort of mm-hmm. refresh read of Twilight and New Moon. Their voices are very different. The writing style is very yeah. different. Not to mention the fact that this book was actually mm-hmm. published under a different publishing house than the one that Stephanie Meyer uses. And in right. actuality, that publishing house, St. Martin's, is actually the publishing house for quite a few authors who have religion as a big thing in their life. So we kind yeah. of did a little bit of sleuthing to figure out yes, if we could we take a take a stab. And we went through a couple of authors that belong to the St. Martin's Publishing Group. And you made some great points about one author in particular who we thought it could be. But before I get into who we might assign this book to. I just want to talk about a couple of the people who are published at St. Martin's. You've got Nora Roberts, who's Irish Catholic. We talked about this. I get it. There's not really any mention of the religious sacraments or traditions of Catholicism that's baked into this. So we ruled her out. You brought up Louise Penny, Mm -hmm. which I thought was maybe going somewhere. But then I said, no Canadian knows what snicker salad is. Yeah, so we ruled her out. These are a couple of authors who write under this, right? So it's Kristen Hanna, doesn't seem to be religious. Anne Cleves, doesn't seem to be religious. Mary Kay Andrews is already a pseudonym for somebody. Yep. So I don't think... <laughs> Double pseudonym up. Yeah, I don't think so. That'd be amazing. Can you imagine? Oh, it's my pseudonym for my pseudonym. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. The person that we both agree could have supposedly written this, supposedly, is... <laughs> Rainbow Rowell, who is part of the LDS community. They have some similar writing style here. They use this repetition of threes, this these parentheticals. And the other piece of evidence was that Rainbow Rowell's other books were published under St. Martin's as well. So she's already got relationships with this person. There is a review of this book that breaks this down a little bit better than what I have done right now. Just Google Jen's review of Corinne and it's on Goodreads. Mm-hmm. Jen, wherever you are, if you're listening, thank you for doing the Lord's work and Truly. determining who did this. So we both think yes. Rainbow wrote this book. Before we settled, we first talked about whether or not we thought that this final version was what the book was intended to be. Yes, we did talk about that. We sort of came up with this zany idea mm-hmm. that perhaps person who's a part of a fundamentalist church group wanted to criticize the church, mm-hmm. but they are still an active member and did not want to be excommunicated. When we were talking about it, it was sort of to say that it included a lot more details, it included a lot more criticism, it included a lot of that unpacking of religious trauma that we expected, but that it was then sent through rounds of editing, mm-hmm. perhaps by one Stephanie Meyer, (laughs) who encouraged the author to tone it down a little bit, pare it down to what it is now. Now, we don't have any type of confirmation this is true. This is just totally our own tinfoil hat conspiracy. Nobody responded to our request for comment is actually what she means here. (laughs) Crazy. I can't believe it. We did talk about the conspiracy. We turned it into a conspiracy theory almost. Yeah. Let me just describe this. We were first reading this book that we both really didn't love. And we were also trying to sleuth out who wrote the book. While we were doing that, it built and built and built until we both said, who did this? Who who put this <laughs> into the into the world? Who birthed this? 
And was this book originally supposed to be a little bit different? I do hope that Stephanie Meyer was included. Can you imagine Stephanie Meyer and Jodi Picoult being in the same editing circle? Oh, Lord. Stephanie Meyer is like writing imprinted on a whiteboard over and over and over again. She's like, I don't see this word anywhere in your book. And Jodi Picoult is just sitting over there like, la, 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 la. <laughs> Speaking of Stephanie Meyer, October 5th is a hallowed day. On this day... 17 years ago, Twilight was published. Culture was created. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, in 2005, when this book came out, I was fully in fifth grade. I did not read it immediately. I think I read it when I was in like sixth grade. But something I did know off the bat, I was Team Edward all the way. Where did you land? This is the most important question. So, I actually read Twilight when New Moon came out. I read them both at the same time. So, I was a little bit late to the bandwagon. In 2005, I was in high school. There is an age gap between you and I yes. and Michaela. This book was a cultural reset. And I was not Team Edward. I was Team Jacob. Oh I my was, God. I get a lot of shit from you and other people that I was Team Jacob. I do want to say I didn't like New Moon as well as the rest of the series. It was not the book that I enjoyed out of the whole series, but I was still Team Jacob. No, I think my, my favorite was definitely Eclipse. But just to flex yes. for a minute here, I mm -hmm. went to the midnight premiere of of Twilight when the movie came out. My friends wow. and I DIY'd our own t-shirts to show whose team we were on. And because I was so edgy with my glitter gel pen, I wrote Team Cam Gigante. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Who's the actor who played James. <laughs> as I oh my was God. <laughs> Michaela. I know I was intolerable, but I was fully Team Edward. I think as an adult, I'm mm -hmm. Team Charlie, but uh, <laughs> as a young girl, that was it. <laughs> I mean, this movie caused some serious bisexual panic in me. You have Kellen Lutz playing Emmett, who that is a that is a whole unit. That is a whole <laughs> unit. <laughs> I'll just say. And then you have the character Alice, who I was also very much finding myself being attracted to. So do you think now as an adult with this Twilight mm -hmm. Renaissance being what it is, do you think your perspective on these books and these characters has changed at all from when you first read them when you were in high school? Yeah, because I think if I was Charlie, if I was Bella's father, I'd be like, you're going to board. You're, you're grounded for <laughs> the rest of your entire life. You are... You are forbode. You're forbode from seeing this person. I'm going to figure out in this world if I can, if you can uninvite vampires from your home oh my God. so that they cannot enter, right? I would be going ape shit. Like I would absolutely be going ape shit. Was that part of the Twilight lore? I don't know. Because I'm pretty I, I sure not. the Riley guy, like in Eclipse, I think he broke into her house and like sniffed her clothing or something. That feels correct. It's been a hot minute since I have read the books. Same. So regardless, if I was in Charlie's position, I would still be doing all of the things that I could to make sure that my daughter wasn't around a hundred plus year old non-human animated corpse that <laughs> loved her. Not the animated corpse. Actually, <laughs> so funny that you say that. I remember watching the movie, not for the first time. It was like a couple times in, I was at a slumber party with my friends and we were watching the movie come out, had come out on DVD. Yeah. And my mom came down and was watching a little bit of it. And there's the scene in the movie and in the book where Bella wakes up and Edward mm -hmm. is watching her sleep and he admits to oh her God. that he frequently breaks into her room and watches her sleep. As a young person, I was like, oh my God, mm -hmm. so romantic. Wow. As an adult, I'm horrified. My mother watching this, standing there watching all these little middle school gremlins swoon over this behavior. Anne-Marie Gilmore said, uh, girls, that's why they invented collapsible bats. If any <gasps> man 
tells you that he watches you sleep regularly. It's time for a grand slam, honey. It's time for a restraining order is what I'm hearing also. Just to be very clear, when you ask me if my perspective has changed as an adult, I don't think that the story has aged extremely well, but it's the accidental pregnancy trope eventually, right? Spoilers, Bella gives birth to (laughs) Ragnarok and it's a horrible... It's horrible. <laughs> what did Robert Pattinson say in one of his interviews? He was like, surely there's another way to get the demon baby out of her. The fanaticism that people had for this book series cannot be overstated. Mm-hmm. It, people were rabid for it. People were so heavily word. invested in the stories and the characters. They fell in love with them. I mean, it sold over 120 million copies worldwide as of 2011. I'm sure by now it's sold even more. Oh, yeah. It was published in in 38 languages. This was a cultural moment. And I Mm -hmm. have the opinion that Twilight is actually the cultural moment that kicked off and sort of the domino effect into the Fifty Shades of Grey and where we are now with the public acceptance of reading what is essentially porn in public. (laughs) Without Edward Cullen, you would not have Christian Grey, right? Absolutely. Something else that was culturally relevant at the time, there was this sort of war going on between fans of Harry Potter and fans of Twilight. And it was a bizarre battle, like a bizarre war. It was a bizarre war where the battleground was hot topic. Oh my God, Michaela. Hot topic you get into. <laughs> if you found like Edward's family ring or if you found like uh-huh. more Harry Potter shirts, then you knew where that store stood. I walked into my local hot topic and you you could tell that they were trying to cater to absolutely every fandom that possibly could exist. All the band shirts, however, were all in the back. Oh, all yeah. the music that everyone loved to talk about, those were all in the back. In the front, life-size things of the Cullens. And then you had Harry, Ron, and Hermione on the other side. It was a rather large hot topic uh, at this mall Sounds in Sounds like it. Good like, Lord. <laughs> It was fantastic. I, I lived there. I loved Hot Topic. I also had trip pants and everything. I thought I was, you know, super edgy or whatever. I thought I was cool. But you're right. It was it was a cultural shift and a cultural phenomenon. There have only been a couple of book series that I think have caused this level, right? You got Obviously, you got Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, obviously comes right to mind. Twilight sits in that weird place where many famous authors have derided her writing, mm-hmm. Stephanie Meyer's writing, said that they don't like it, but that the story and the cultural acceptance of it is astounding. This book series sits in that place between it's kind of bad, but it's so cheesy and ridiculous that it's good. Well, that's what I mean when I say it was a domino effect, because that's how I would describe a majority of like my quote unquote beach reads that I had this summer, Mm -hmm. most of the romance books I'm reading, it's not like they're astounding literature. I'm not expanding my (laughs) brain from reading them, but it's just enjoyable. And that's sort of, I think, what Twilight really kickstarted, at least for people in my circles and the people in my generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think you can credit Twilight with the fact that Muse as a band has maintained popularity through the years. No shade. No shade. No shade. Only love. The question I want to leave off with, why do we love this series so much? You and I just reminisced a bit about how much we loved it in the fandom. Why do we keep returning to it? Honestly, I think the reason I keep returning to Twilight is the same reason I return to old Fallout Boy albums. It's the same Mm -hmm. reason I return over and over again to the Akatar series. I feel a level of comfort with those things because there's no expectations. It's almost like the other side of the coin to Corinne. In Corinne, I had a ton of expectations that I was let down by. Twilight, I 
I have no expectations. It's about no. a vampire falling in love with a 17-year-old. Arguably very <laughs> creepy, but <laughs> yeah. nevertheless, it feels like a comfort movie and a comfort book series. And I think that that's what it gives people more than anything else is just a sense mm-hmm. of, I don't have to try very hard to understand this story. It's just, it just is. And also, I will say very quickly, uh-huh. I probably read this book around 2007, 2006. That was the peak of Jonas Brothers for me. That was oh yeah, such a moment in my adolescence. 2007 is such an important year for me. Mm-hmm. And Twilight just brings all that right back up. I think I returned to it almost unwillingly because of how much I find myself liking it. But the reason I keep getting pulled back in, the lore that exists inside of this world that Stephanie Meyer has created. There's a lot of stuff to absorb and to learn. There's a creator on TikTok that we've mentioned briefly before in another episode. Her entire account is talking about the lore of Twilight. And every time she talks about it, I have to go back on the Wikipedia page and look through the fandom wiki just to figure out what she's talking about. She knows all the backstory to all of these random things inside of the book. I return to it like you because it's a comfort. I will not be ever returning to Corinne. No, never. I will think about it all of the time. It will be in my head for the rest of my life. I can't tell if that's a mark of a good book or not, right? It's a pretty low bar whether or not you continually think about a book, but I will be returning to Twilight throughout the rest of my adult life. Corinne, I think I will mention in passing. (laughs) It's like the toxic ex that you just keep thinking about, but you know... I'm never going back there. Listen, I'm not trying to rehash all of her exes, but even knowing more about any of them would have been helpful. So true. (laughs) Give me anything. So true. Thank you all so much for joining us in another episode of Pages Unknown. If you check out Corinne or you just want to share your thoughts about Twilight, you can find us on TikTok under Pages Unknown. Don't forget to join us on the Literal Book Club app. We do have some very cool episodes coming up. We are going to be reading Babel and you might have a special guest on that episode about a month out from now. So be on the lookout for that. This is us signing off. We'll catch you on the next one. Thank you.